welcome back to Life, Family, Liberty, a radio show and podcast from California Family Council. I am your host, Jonathan Keller. Very happy to be joined again in studio by my occasional co-host and good friend, John Girardi. Hey, good to be here. John is the executive director of Right to Life Central California and very happy to have kind of this synergy going back and forth between my show and his show and the different work we're doing here in the state of California. Yep. We have a... Well, I was going to say a lot to talk about. Probably we not, don't have a lot to talk about. <laughs> not, not quite as much as some past weeks. Although since, I will say this, since the last episode last week, we have had a couple of big developments. Uh, number one, President Trump did finally sign the long-rumored executive order on religious liberty. Yeah, which uh, turned out to be um, not quite all it was cracked well, up to the, be or the legal to be. The legal term, I think, John, it, it is... Uh, Nothing burger, you said? Big nothing burger. Sort of, more or less. I mean, it's not bad. Basically, it's sort of a pledge that that more stuff is going to happen. Uh, Says it'll give the IRS leniency in enforcing the Johnson Amendment, which is the part of the tax code that says that churches aren't allowed to endorse political candidates. It says we'll give some regulatory relief for people who are being subjected to the HHS mandates from Obamacare, which require employers to cover certain kinds of abortifacient and contraception, but it doesn't actually do anything. It just sort of says, oh, the regula- regulations will be introduced. Well, just introduce the regulations then, if, if, that's, if that's the case. And it doesn't really provide a lot of the protections that people were hoping it would provide for things like people who didn't want to participate in gay marriage, for example, bakers who didn't want to participate in a gay wedding. Uh, there are certain kinds of relief at the federal level through uh, executive order that perhaps could have been granted to people in those situations, but not very much was done. So it was kind of a disappointment. I mean, it's not bad. It's a move in the right direction. And maybe it's preferable for some of these things to be dealt with legislatively. I think passing something like the First Amendment Defense Act would be good. I think the Conscience Protection Act would be really good, particularly for those of us in California. These are pieces of legislation that the U.S. Congress is considering right now. And they would provide those kinds of relief to people who don't want to participate, insurance providers who don't want to cover things like abortion, employers who don't want to cover abortion in their insurance plans for their employees, and people who don't want to have to participate in some creative way in gay marriage, for example, bakers, florists, photographers, things like that. And these are all things that need that I think would probably be better dealt with legislatively. That doesn't mean the Trump administration can't try to do a little more. So, you know, the, these were policy commitments that Trump made, you know, that he would do more on these things. And we need to hold him accountable to those. I, I'm not going to say this was a bad thing by the Trump administration. It's a step in the right direction. Uh, but more needs to be done. And I'm, I'm hopeful that more will be done. And I was hoping today that we would be joined live on the phone by one of our friends at Alliance Defending Freedom, but we have the next best thing. We have a little bit of an extended clip from our friend Greg Baylor, who is with Alliance Defending Freedom. He was interviewed last week on the day this order came out by National Public Radio. Yes, I know, I know, NPR. But Greg, I think, does a very good job of explaining the benefits of this order, but also why it does not go long enough. So uh, the host starts by getting the left side of the argument, and then he finishes up with Greg. So here is Greg Baylor on National Public Radio. The White House says President Trump is about to take a step toward keeping a promise today. Many times the president has said he would get rid of a law that prohibits tax-exempt religious institutions from endorsing or opposing political candidates. 
I will get rid of and totally destroy the Johnson Amendment and allow our representatives of faith to speak freely and without fear of retribution. That was the president earlier this year. Now, today, the president plans an executive order that's said to move in that direction. NPR's Tom Jelton covers religion. He's in our studios. Good morning, Tom. Hi, Steve. How far does it move in that direction of getting rid of and totally destroying this law? Well, the president can't destroy a law. Uh, only Congress can do that. This is part of the tax code. What the president can do and what we understand from the White House he will do is instruct the IRS to back off in enforcing it so vigorously. Meaning don't enforce it at all? Don't enforce it so much? He, to use maximum discretion in enforcing it. So I guess it's up to the IRS to decide what that means. Was it being enforced a lot to begin with? Tom? No, it wasn't. It actually wasn't. There have been very few churches that have suffered the consequences of violating this. Interestingly enough, Steve, uh, the Pew Research Center did a survey uh, last fall and found that the churches most likely to be violating this were uh, African-American Protestant churches who were openly advocating for Hillary Clinton's candidacy. Which is really interesting because it's actually people on the other side of the political spectrum who have felt most bothered and constrained by that's this right. by this law. Right. Now, that's not all that's no. going to be in this executive order, right? A couple more things. Uh, it'll also... Uh, ease the burden on religious groups, some of the burdens that flow from the Obamacare health care mandates. Uh, those mandates were then interpreted by the uh, Obama administration in terms of regulations. Some of those regulations will apparently be rescinded uh, under the executive order, although the White House is not saying which regulations and how exactly they're going to be rescinded. And then the third thing, a very broad statement saying that the White House is now committed to a policy of protection protecting and vigorously promoting religious liberty, whatever that means. And that's something that virtually any president would probably say in some form. It's just a question of what, what he means. Exactly. Let's bring another voice into the conversation because Greg Baylor is with us also. He's a senior counsel with the Alliance Defending Freedom, which advocates for religious freedom on religious freedom issues. Thanks for coming by. Good morning. It's great to be and here. And for wearing a tie early in the morning. Really appreciate that. Really, really great. Uh, was this executive order what you wanted? I would say that, you know, the two words that come to mind in seeing the outline of this upcoming executive order are disappointment and hope. There's disappointment because it's not all that we hoped that it would be. Mm -hmm. But we do have hope that this perhaps is just the first step in the Trump administration's effort to fulfill its campaign promise that he made on the campaign trail that he would fully protect religious freedom, that he would protect people like the Little Sisters, that he would stop his administration being something that really interferes significantly with the religious freedom of people. Well, let's ask about both parts of that. First, uh, you, you said disappointed. It doesn't do very much. What is limiting about this executive order so far as we know? Granted, we don't have the text yet. Yeah, yeah, we don't have the text yet. But with regard to the HHS abortion pill mandate, all that it says is that it's going to provide regulatory relief. That is disappointingly vague, especially given how long we've had to discuss this issue. These lawsuits were filed, some of them back in 2012, many of them in 2013 and 14. And the answer 
to this problem has been quite obvious all along. What the administration needs to do is to craft an exemption that prohibits everyone who objects on religious and moral grounds uh, from violating their convictions through the content of their health plan. This is the obvious answer, and it's not done in this executive Let's order. Let's just remember what this debate is about. We're talking about women's contraception here. We're talking about private employers who are providing insurance. They're required to have some essential benefits as part of the insurance, and some people objected to providing contraception, and they want this exemption. That's what you're discussing here, right? Although there's one important distinction to point out. Many of the objectors did not object to contraceptive generally they objected only to the ones that cause abortion. All of my Protestant clients object only to abortion. This is something that had never been mandated. It wasn't required to be mandated in the Affordable Care Act. And when the Obama administration implemented this, they tipped their hat to religious freedom by crafting an extraordinarily narrow religious exemption that only protected a few. And essentially the case that we've been making all along is don't differentiate in the field of religious liberty. You should protect the normal class of religious organizations that are protected in other contexts. Tom Jelton, is it possible to broaden the protections, the number of people who would be exempt from this regulation without actually changing the law? Yes, because the law didn't specify uh, a lot of, of what Mr. Baylor is talking about. Those uh, came in the regulations that the uh, Obama administration put out for how to implement the law. So those regulations could be changed. They could be reversed. That's entirely up to this administration to, to do. Now, he also, Greg Baylor, just used the word hope uh, that he would like to see more. Is it your sense that there is a, a broad political base for, for driving on these issues considerably more? Oh, I think there definitely is. And I do have to say that we understand that as of 4 o'clock yesterday afternoon, the executive order was not actually entirely written yet. So we've gotten very vague language here, very broad language. It's entirely possible that we're going to get more specifics later today when President Trump talks about this. And I imagine we can expect plenty of people on the other side of the debate for Mr. Baylor to weigh in as the days uh, as the day goes on. Right. We'll see, see what happens there. Greg Baylor, thanks very much for coming by. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. He is with the Alliance Defending Freedom, which advocates on religious freedom issues. And NPR's Tom Jelton covers religion for NPR. Tom, thanks to you. Good to see you, Steve. Well, thanks to NPR. I know we, uh, as conservatives, slag on NPR quite frequently, but that was actually a a well-produced and fair segment. And when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about the results of this religious liberty order, what this means. As Greg said, uh, John, I thought that was very a good, eloquent summation, uh, disappointment and hope. And one of those things is that even though we are not, we're not extremely happy with this, executive order. We did get some good news over the weekend about President Trump's judicial appointments. Yes, uh, indeed. Very good news. Couple of couple of good things. New justices, including one, John, that you have a personal connection with. There you go. We'll come back. We'll talk about that here in just a few minutes on Life, Family, Liberty, a podcast and radio show from California Family Council. Welcome back to Life, Family, Liberty, a podcast and radio show from California Family Council. I'm your host, Jonathan Keller, joined in studio by John Girardi from Right to Life Central California. And I don't know, John, do you think we can count playing Greg Baylor's audio as keeping the ADF streak alive? I think so. There you go. We, 
I, I, we, we had four weeks in a row. I really didn't want to break the streak. Well, so. there you go. Good job. I mean, it's, it's almost as long as the Hugh Hewitt streak. Hey, there you go. Do you realize you had a full hour of Jim Franklin's radio show uh, before this radio show for you oh, podcast listeners? Oh, my gosh. Uh, before this radio show, there's play for you podcast listeners out there, uh, there's a local radio show, the Jim Franklin, Jim Franklin Live, which is hosted by Jim Franklin, who's a really great pastor out here in Central California. Big supporter of both of our organizations. Uh, and those of you listening on the radio right now, of course, you know Jim Franklin very well. Uh, Jonathan has this thing because Jonathan loves Hugh Hewitt so much. Jonathan constantly has to mention Hugh Hewitt every time he is on Jim Franklin Live. And somehow, and to the point that Jim just constantly gives just gives Jonathan grief about it. That's right. Of him. And for some reason, Jonathan completely forgot to mention Hugh Hewitt at all uh, during the last hour of radio that we just did. I, I personally blame my co-host. Oh, so if... Yeah, if, there you uh, go. if Hugh is listening or Jim is listening. I blame Johnny for failing to remind me. Yeah, I'm sure Hugh is sitting by his radio, like, slumped over, like, he didn't even mention didn't, me. Does he even, even like me still? That's right. Don't worry, Hugh. He still loves you. He's probably asleep, actually, given the fact that, as he said, today is his first day back in D.C. So he's probably ah. sleep-deprived and exhausted. Yes. But, hey, on that note, speaking of things happening in D.C. Hey, hey, hey. We've heard earlier that President Trump has... Well, he's about to release a list of 10 new nominees to federal judgeships, and one of those is someone that you actually have a personal relationship with. Yeah, so all of these appointments seem really good. A couple of them are uh, people who are serving on different Supreme Courts in different states, so there's justice from the Michigan Supreme Court, a justice from the Minnesota Supreme Court. Uh, they, these are all really conservative lawyers. Some of them were on President Trump's list of uh, judges he might appoint to the U.S. Supreme Court. The, one of the people he appointed today is uh, Amy Barrett. Amy Barrett is a professor at Notre Dame Law School and was my professor during contracts. Uh, so during my contracts class. So I've, she's really conservative, a really great legal scholar. And she's going to serve on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, where hopefully she'll serve as a counterpoint to the very pro-choice and very pro-assisted suicide and anti-religious liberty Judge Richard Posner, who is, in addition to all of those things, is also a uh, – well, for one thing, he's one of the – he's probably the most influential non-Supreme Court justice uh, in the country – as far as the law goes, uh, but he's also a world class jerk. Uh, so I'm, <laughs> I, I hope Amy uh, will. Amy, who is in addition to being very conservative and a former clerk for Justice Scalia, and really uh, is also a very sweet and wonderful, nice person. So I'm very hopeful that she will. Uh, serve as a nice counter to Judge Posner on the Seventh Circuit. That would be awfully nice. Well, John, one of the things I think that's interesting about this is that these judges are being picked from what we have been able to tell. They're very conservative. Mm -hmm. They're very consistently conservative, which would seem to indicate maybe the influence of an outside force, Yes, (laughs) not just the Trump administration themselves. One of the things that's very clear is that Trump has sort of – he's contracted out the work of picking these judges to the Federalist Society, which is the big uh, national conservative legal think tank and educational organization, uh, which has chapters in every law, almost every law school in America and a bunch of regional chapters all over the United States. And Justice Scalia was a huge founding influence on the Federalist Society. Clarence Thomas is 
been a huge influence on the Federalist Society. And basically they promote a conservative, restrained, originalist understanding of the Constitution, uh, the idea that we interpret law. We don't create law and make law wholesale according to our individual whims. So uh, there's the story that Judge Gorsuch, when he was uh, – he was not first contacted about the Supreme Court seat by – Anyone from the Trump administration, he was first contacted by Leonard Leo, the president of the Federalist Society. And I, for one, am delighted that the Trump administration is doing this. In fact, this is a development that where really the Trump administration is doing something far better than either of the Bush administrations or the Reagan administration did. Uh, they're not trying to be cute about these judges. They're farming out the selection to basically the best possible people. And as a result, we're getting fantastic judges all around. I think Gorsuch is going to be great. Every one of these other picks that I've read about or heard about seems absolutely fantastic. Wait a minute, John. Are you saying that having your chief of staff, John Sununu from the uh, George H.W. Bush administration, just randomly pick some judge, David Souter, from New Hampshire (laughs) with no – paper trail with no background with no real consistent philosophy right. but hey trust me trust me president bush but we can he's going to be a good guy we can get him through the senate he's going to be a he, he'll he'll be great yeah. you're saying that's not a good philosophy for conservatives no it's a terrible philosophy it's bitten <laughs> us in the rear end on so many occasions with kennedy with uh, sandra day o'connor with david souter uh, i mean eisenhower after he was done with his presidency someone asked him like what, what are mm. your what are your big regrets uh, from from your time as president? What are your biggest regrets? And he said, "Well, I only have two regrets, and they're both sitting on the Supreme Court." Ooh. So, so uh, the idea of farming out the selection of people not to you know not to just anybody, but farming it out to people who really know what they're doing, I think is brilliant. And it's yield it's already yielding some very good results, and I'm looking forward to four more years of winning so much that I can't stand it anymore. <laughs> well, when we come back from the break in a little bit, we're going to play a clip from uh, Ben Sass talking about the Federalist Society and why, John, I think the thing that's crazy is a lot of the mainstream media and especially a lot of the Democrats, if you go and read the – or especially if you listen to the audio from Chuck Schumer when he was talking about Judge Neil Gorsuch, but then when he was talking about the only other one of President Trump's nominees that has so far had a hearing, Judge uh, – Amal Thapar, who is a judge uh, nominated, I believe, for the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, The Democrats are using this line of attack of kind of guilt by association. They are trying to slander and tarnish the name of the Federalist Society and then say that if you have any association, I mean, you you joked, what was the line that uh, Senator Uh, Sass had? Are you now or have you ever been a member of the Federalist Society? (laughs) As if, I mean, that's the thing. Like, the Federalist Society is not some radical group of right-wing extremists. I mean, again, there's a chapter of the Federalist Society in almost every major law school in America. It's just, it just means you're conservative. Like, it's not like you're crazy or something. and, And not even particularly, not an activist conservative, but an originalist, textualist, constitutional conservative. Right. Like the the idea that, I mean the left is trying to present the idea that the Federalist Society is some it's like the John Birch Society or something <laughs> so that like if you have anything to do with it then you must be crazy like you must be some sort of closet weirdo who you know wants to you know 
I don't know, steal contraception out of women's hands and, and you know, return us to the 1950s. And that's just not the case. It's not the case. And when we come back from break, we'll play a clip from Senator Ben Sass from the state of Nebraska talking about why that line of attack is ridiculous. And a little bit later in the show, we'll also hear more about some of the crazy, ridiculous stuff coming out of Sacramento. So stay tuned here on Life, Family, Liberty. Welcome back to Life, Family, Liberty. Knocking over chairs right as the microphone's going. Yeah, that's a little embarrassing. <laughs> that's how you know it is high production value. You know, we like to just... This, this, this chair seems to be at exactly the wrong height for you. Yeah. You've been uncomfortably standing up and sitting uh, down like the entire hour and a half we've been doing this. It's, yeah, I guess that is a difference between doing just a one-hour radio show versus a two-hour radio show. You really want to have a comfortable chair, so... There you go. Uh I'm trying to transition out of that. Speaking of comfortable chairs. Awkward transition. Uh, yes. No, no. Spe- oh, here, okay, here you go. Okay. <laughs> Speaking of comfortable chairs, how about a lifetime appointment to the federal judiciary? Yay. Good job. All right. We, uh, we talked in the last segment about the judges that are being appointed by President Trump. We don't know for sure the names of all of them, but we know there's going to be about 10 that are released today. Yeah, and several, several of the names have been released, and, and they're all really good, uh, including one of my old law school professors from Notre Dame. Uh, so we're, we're quite excited about that. And th- that's the other aspect about judges in the judiciary. When During the election, we were faced with this stark choice between Trump and Clinton, and one of the things that was on everyone's mind, obviously, was the vacant Supreme Court seat. But what people didn't talk about a lot was that there are 120 lower court seats that are all vacant right now. And President whoever won the election would have the opportunity to fill all of them and to radically reshape the way our judiciary looks in this country, where you know, there's so many circuit courts because of eight years of President Obama. There's so many federal circuit courts, which are creating law for huge swaths of the country. So many of these federal circuit huge courts. Huge swaths. Huge swaths. So many of these federal circuit courts are dominated by liberals. And over the course of these four years, we could really shift that tide by appointing these 120 really good conservative judges to these 120 vacancies, yeah. which is why we're so thrilled that Trump has delegated the task of selecting these judges to the Federalist Society, which I trust way more than anyone to pick good people. But as we said in the last segment, who exactly is the Federalist Society? Who are these strange masked men? Well, they're actually not that strange. They're kind of out there for everybody to see. Everybody knows who they are. As John said, they're on probably virtually every law school campus in the United States. Here is Senator Ben Sass from the great state of Nebraska, one of my favorite senators, becoming, I think, one of the best voices for individual liberty and freedom in the United States Senate. Uh, this is him talking about the Federalist Society. This is at the hearing for Judge Amal Thapar and talking about why we should engage arguments and not resort to ad hominem attacks when we don't like someone's uh, views. I would love to just ask you some questions that really should be stunningly basic, but our institution is not serious enough um, in, in this Senate right now. Can you tell me, is it a radical idea to say that the state exists to preserve freedom? No. Is it a radical idea that the separation of governmental powers is central to our Constitution? No, it was the wisdom of our founders. And is it a radical idea to say that it is, quote, emphatically the province and the duty of the judiciary to say what the law is, not what it should be? 
no, I hope that's exactly our duty because that's what I try to do. Um, I serve in an office where the people can fire me. Uh, you're being considered for an office where the people wouldn't be able to fire you. So if you thought that you were secretly a philosopher king who should be wiser than all of the 320 million Americans and decide the answer, uh, would that fit with the American founder's view of government? Absolutely not. The reason you would have lifetime tenure in your next calling, and as you do as a judge now, is precisely because you're not accountable to the people in the same way that we on this dais are to be accountable to the people. I'd like to read to you in combination the three sentences that I was just asking you about because bizarrely, about a third of this hearing has been preoccupied with the idea that it is somehow radical to believe in the American Constitution. Uh, The Federalist Society's founding mission statement, I was at another meeting, but I overheard some of the questioning on TV, uh, so I ran back. Again, I apologize for standing between you and lunch, Uh, but the Federalist Society is, quote, founded on the principles that the state exists to preserve freedom, that the separation of governmental powers is central to our Constitution, and that it is emphatically the province and the duty of the judiciary to say what the law is, not what it should be. The Federalist Society is a debating society of law students and lawyers. It's about the Constitution. We in this body have taken an oath to the Constitution. If there is any senator of the hundred in this body that disagrees with any of the three, please resign today. This was nonsense. A huge part of this hearing was about trying to demonize the Federalist Society, an organization that if you really have a problem with any of those three principles, your oath of office is not an oath that you took without rental reservation. So I think that the questioning that you've been subjected to today was about 50, 60, 75% in good faith and about 25% trying to demonize an organization that stands for something that is aligned with the oath of office that the hundred of us have taken. So, John, I'm, I'm no attorney, but I'm going to make a very, very obscure legal joke. Uh, them's fighting words. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I, I think SAS is pressing on kind of – We've seen this more and more from the left, the idea that basically to characterize mainstream conservative viewpoints on things like – not just about judges but on more broadly about things like religious liberty or on things like abortion or about same-sex marriage. To characterize their opposition not just as as someone they disagree with or someone who's wrong but as someone who is radically evil and needs to be shunned and shoved out of all polite public society the way we did with racists. And so they're trying to to cast this specter over these uh, Trump judicial nominees. But you were in the Federalist Society? Oh my gosh. Do you know the Federalist Society – doesn't think that the Constitution protects gay marriage, even though it doesn't say anything about gay marriage in the Constitution. Like, they, they're trying to act as though the Federalist Society, by virtue of just being conservative, just thinking that the Constitution says what it says and doesn't say what it doesn't say, and that we should interpret it rather than make up our own stuff, pretending the Constitution says stuff. Uh, they're trying to characterize any involvement with the Federalist Society as proof that you're an extremist radical. And the, thankfully, the re- conservatives, for the most part, are in a slim majority in the Senate. Otherwise, that mindset could become the dominant force in our Senate confirmation hearings for judges. So I, I'm, I'm glad that Senator Sass sort of pushed back against it. Uh, we need to fight back. We need to say, no, there is room for people to say 
that marriage is between man and woman. There's room for people to say that life begins at conception, that abortion shouldn't be legal. Like, we should have the freedom under the First Amendment to say and believe what we believe. Absolutely. And folks, we're going to talk more about that as it relates to California when we come back. Make sure you stay tuned here on AM 16 of The Answer for more of Life, Family, Liberty. Welcome back to Life, Family, Liberty, a podcast from California Family Council, also a radio show here on AM 1680, The Answer in Central California. We've been talking so far today about a lot of federal issues. We began the show talking about President Trump's executive order, the importance of religious liberty on a federal level. We talked about the role of judges and the federal judiciary uh, and the Federalist Society. Uh, But we want to make sure we also bring things back to the state of California. We have some just absolutely crazy bills that are continuing to make their way through the state legislature. One of those was going to be heard in the Appropriations Committee today on Monday, May 8th. Fortunately, they have postponed that hearing back to next Monday, the 15th of May. Uh, That means that you have more time to get engaged. You have more time to make phone calls in opposition to SB 179. And joining us in opposition today is the Director of Communications for the Just Want Privacy Campaign from Washington State, Kaylee Triller-Haver. Kaylee, thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me back. You pointed out earlier this week, or I guess late last week, you sent me an article from a group that... I guess we could say maybe is a strange partner, strange bedfellows in fighting this issue of gender identity and the abolition of biological, physiological sex. The Women's Liberation Front, which is actually what is known as kind of a rad femme group, which is short for radical feminist. Why is it that even radical feminists are opposing bills like SB 179? Yeah, I think that's it's so important to kind of spell this out for people because People largely see this as a conservative versus a liberal issue, and that's all it's ever kind of presented as in the media. Um, but the reality is anybody has good reason to oppose this, okay, because it's insulting the basic human intelligence. But this is primarily a woman's issue because women are the ones who are losing most often on this. And the reality is that there are so many, there are thousands of far-left radical feminists, lesbians, who also see this as a woman's issue, who see all these hard-earned protections that they fought for for years and years and years being basically erased overnight by legislation that says there is no such thing as woman. So essentially that negates women's rights. It it negates Title IX. It it negates, you know, a lot of different things that we've worked really hard to achieve. And so there are these voices that are coming out, and they're getting no platformed. And so you're not going to hear them a lot because the, the liberal media just shuts them down and trans activists go after their careers and whatnot, but uh, the Women's Liberation Front is one of those groups, and they've been fighting this hardcore, and and they're standing with us on this issue. So uh, really good voices in there that need to be considered. Yeah, and the article that they posted, which I will tweet out after the show is over, so you can follow me at Jonathan Keller on Twitter and at CA Family is our California Family Council page. Uh, The three main points that they make in this article, this urgent alert, are, number one, that SB 179 allows revision of birth records based solely on self-declared gender identity, that it makes it easier to get accurate information about a person's sex and identity placed under seal, and also that it is appearing to place a heavy thumb on allowing people's accurate information to be placed under seal. It really is a kind of a scary bit of policy. And Kaylee, you mentioned something about 
Title IX. And this is something that I actually talked about in my testimony last week, the fact that if this bill is allowed to progress, it would more or less abolish any ability for schools to have meaningful sex-based distinctions in their athletic departments. And we have this on good authority. Matt Sharp from Alliance Defending Freedom joined us on the radio last week saying that if Title IX applies to men and women, males and females, it would by necessity apply to this third gender, which essentially would mean there's there's no now true men's and women's sports teams. The next step in this is to just abolish those teams altogether and have them be all just co-ed. And you, you have a personal story of how that would have affected you and your educational experience. I wouldn't have a college degree. I, I paid for college um, by a basketball scholarship. And I think people think, well, that's never going to happen. I can tell you, I, I can give you a list of where this has already happened. Um, you know, we just had a, a transgender or a male win a women's cycling competition. Same thing in a women's marathon. Um, and these have uh, money attached to them, these prizes. There is a male who's currently uh, trying to get onto the next women's U.S. volleyball team. Um, for the Olympics. And it goes on and on and on, weightlifting. And what you're going to see is I don't know that you're ever going to see a female, regardless of how she identifies, even if she thinks she's a male, she's, you're not going to see them in the NBA or the NFL. Or I mean, it's, it's, it's obvious that this plays out very poorly for women. Women aren't going aren't gonna to win this one. Right. Again, we're not being sexist. We're just talking about physiology and biology that in many cases, if these sports rely on, you know, sheer physical strength or especially upper body strength in a lot of cases, it is actually discriminatory and it is prejudiced against biological women to say that biological physiological men have the right to go and compete in women's only sports. Well, think about just this, uh, I think this last month in Connecticut, there's a, a high school freshman who is a male who just competed on the women's or the, the girls' track team. First race off the blocks uh, in a 100-meter dash. Gets a, gets a time that is less than one second um, different than the overall all-time women's collegiate record. Hmm. Wow. Um, so uh, you can guarantee this person is going to finish their high school career as the best female track star of all time and it's, it's ridiculous well and, and not there <laughs> and we talk about the fact there's so much discussion of you know whether or not there should be asterisks in the major league baseball record books with barry bonds or mark mcguire sammy sosa you know should all of those records be abolished for home runs because they were known to be doping they were you know taking steroids at the time <laughs> this is so much more dramatic this isn't just a single <laughs> drug this is an entirely different physiology yeah, it is. I mean, males and females have different physiology. There's different O2 capacity. There's different muscle structure, height, overall body size. These are things you can't compensate for with hormones. They're just different. It's absolutely so. true. Well, Kaylee, uh, in the last couple seconds here before we close, where can people find you and your work with Just Want Privacy online? Sure. JustWantPrivacy.org is our website. Um, and then also Facebook is a good resource. Uh, we have a, a site there as well. We've Put a lot of links to this kind of information up there. And on Twitter, I know you are Kaylee T. Uh, can you spell That's your right. handle for people? 
Sure thing. K-A-E-L-E-Y-T. That's my handle on Twitter. And I, twi- I tweet a lot on this. Yeah. Kaylee puts out some phenomenal information on this issue. Uh, folks, we're really grateful that she brought this article to our attention here. Uh, sometimes you have to work across the aisle and find uh, unique partners. Kaylee Triller-Haver, thank you so much for being with us. We'll be back in just a minute here on Life, Family, Liberty. Welcome back to Life, Family, Liberty, a podcast and radio show from California Family Council. Very happy to have had a great lineup today of guests. Greg Baylor, our ADF attorney, joined us via NPR interview. <laughs> he didn't really join us. Well, he just played a clip. We, yeah, it's, it still counts. Streak unbroken. I've, I've already talked with ADF. We will have someone from them next week. So happy to be having them fill in. We heard some stimulating discussion about the situation going on with the executive order and everything else. Heard from Kaylee Triller-Haver about SB 179, and I encourage you folks, go to our website, californiafamily.org. You can find out a lot more about that. But we do have one very important bit of information. I usually don't like to talk about hyper-local stories, but because this is the first of its kind in California, I think you all need to hear this. Here's the story of the night on social media. California will soon get a taste of Cracker Barrel's fancy fixins, yes! and it will be right here in Fresno. Country-themed restaurant and gift shop will soon be moving into the El Paseo Shopping Center in northwest Fresno, right next to the Target store. The Fresno spot will be part of Cracker Barrel's expansion into California. Currently, there are no open locations in the state for the nationwide chain. A new Panera Bread will also be built right next door. Who cares about Panera, people? It's all about Cracker Barrel. Cracker Barrel! Yeah! And for for those of you who are across the country listening, my, my friends who run... Family policy councils in Ohio or in Oklahoma, Texas, Arizona. You all are familiar with Cracker Barrel, but out here in California, we have not had the opportunity to have that. So uh, it's going to be really good, and uh, yes, you should come. The, the great thing is because it is the only one in the state of California, you should make sure that you drive from all across California, drive through Fresno. Uh, of course. We deserve to have a Cracker Barrel here in the state of California. We deserve to have one in Fresno, I think, most of all. So It really it really signifies how Fresno is just Trump country. I mean, we got, <laughs> if you have a Cracker Barrel in your county, that county probably went red in the uh, 2016 election. That is almost for sure. So, <laughs> folks, we're very happy to have you with us today. Uh, please share this episode on social media. Please share our website and everything else to help get the word out. Thanks, John Girardi, for being with us. We look forward to being with you again next week on Life, Family, Liberty.